So picture a family sitting in a darkened hospital room. They had hoped that the new treatment would have bought them more time with their loved one. But now their attention turns to planning a funeral. Picture a mom and dad waiting anxiously at home, hoping that their latest plea would bring their wayward son back. Picture a young couple grieving together as their hope for having children of their own is dashed once again. These are turning point moments, aren't they? They ask us, where are we going to turn when these, when these hard things come at us? They beg us to ask, will help come? They leave us wondering, is, is the sadness and the hopelessness ever going to lift? I mention all that because our passage this morning begins in a place where hope has been shattered. It's now the third day after Jesus' gruesome death and his community of disciples seems to be breaking apart. Several women of this group visited his tomb in the early morning. They came back to the, to the rest of the group and they shared what they had seen, a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. But then sadly, Luke tells us that for this group, these words were an idle tale and they did not believe. It's on that note that the two disciples we're going to read about in our passage began their journey back to a village named Emmaus. They came into Jerusalem filled with great hope, high expectations, and now they are leaving hopeless, dejected, sad. And what we'll see in our passage is how Jesus pursues the hopeless, how he opens their eyes to what they've misunderstood all along. So our text this morning comes from Luke's gospel, chapter 24, verses 13 to 32. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? As they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but 
they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. They were talking and discussing, and Jesus drew near and went with them. That's Jesus' first move towards these hopeless disciples. He drew near. You know, leaving Jerusalem when you've heard a report that Jesus was alive is not a great sign of faith. So while they were still going over the events of the past couple days, I think you can make the case that these two had essentially given up. But in his grace and kindness, we see that Jesus didn't give up on them. Over and over and over, we see in the Gospels that hurting, grieving, bewildered people like this, they are attractive to Jesus. Luke tells us earlier that at one point, tax collectors and sinners, they were drawing near to Jesus. And he never once drove them away. People with baggage and problems. At the very start of Jesus' ministry, when he, was, when he was gathering his disciples, at one point, Simon Peter fell down at his knees and said to Jesus, depart from me. Jesus, don't draw near, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus stayed right there with Peter, because that's what sinful people need, for Jesus to draw near. The Son of God was so willing. The Son of God was so willing to draw near to us that he took upon himself our frail humanity. The incarnation. The incarnation is about the infinite creator, as one author puts it, becoming a finite creature without in any way foregoing his creator infinity. That's how much Jesus desires and is willing to draw near to us. And because Jesus draws near, that means his church, his, his body here on earth should be marked by drawing near to one another. Drawing near to the person in grief. Drawing near to the person whose life is just entangled with sin. 
It means drawing near to the person who we see wandering away. As the king goes, Ed Welch says in his book, Side by Side, as the king goes, so go his people. Church, we should never, we should never accept or tolerate an individualistic Christianity. It just doesn't work. And one of the main ways we draw near to one another is by gathering here to worship on the Lord's day. It's a time for you to be, to be ministered to. But it's also a time and a space for you to do ministry. God's ministry plan for his church is not to give the church one or two pastors. God's ministry plan for his people is the local church. You need help following Jesus. It's too difficult to do alone in a fallen world. You need help to follow the Lord and someone needs your help. I think Jesus's life could have been a lot easier if he wasn't always getting involved. But that's not love. The first move the first move before we can offer counsel, before we can help, before we can truly offer prayer is to draw near. So Spring Hill, not just because it's cold in here, draw near to one another. Life is hard. There is the sin that, that comes at us and there is the sin that still dwells within us. Life is hard. And we all need people to come alongside us and go with us. And so once Jesus drew near, look at his next move in verses 17 and 19. He asked questions. The all-knowing, the all-powerful Son of God asks questions. Right? Our tendency when we have an answer to a problem is to shout it out. It proves how smart we are, how wise we are, how helpful we are, how much we've got it together. And we can fall into this bad habit of rushing to fix things, especially when people are in grief, when we sense hopelessness in them. Right? We see that as a burning building, and our job is to get them out as quickly as possible. But here... Jesus asks simple questions, right? He lets these two talk. He allows them to wrestle with what has just happened. Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Gospel Comes with a, with a House Key, has a wonderful insight about Jesus' approach here. She says, you notice Jesus doesn't hurry them. He doesn't jolly them. He doesn't fear their pain or even their wrong-minded notions of who the Christ should be or is. He knows that the process is important. He accompanies them in their suffering. And we need to do the same. When people are willing to stop and tell us where they hurt, we need to praise God for it. And we need to stop what we are doing. 
shut our mouths and listen with care. Most of us would have stopped Cleopas somewhere around verse 20. I would have been prone to jump in there and say, no, no, Cleopas, you don't know how wrong you are. Here's the answer. Here's the truth. See, the problem for these two was not that there was a lack of evidence. They received a report from the women in their group. Others went to the tomb and confirmed that, yes, it was empty. So you see, there was enough evidence to stick around and investigate these claims. And so I wonder, why, why didn't they go to the tomb? Why dismiss the women's report so easily? And the answer is the cross. The cross was the stumbling block. The cross was their obstacle of faith. You look again at verses 20 to 21. When they're speaking about Jesus and the things that took place, they say that it was our chief priest and rulers who delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. For them, the cross disqualified Jesus. They had hoped for a Moses-like figure who would have stood up to Rome, who would have battled Rome, who would have brought down plagues on these pagan overlords. They were hoping for someone to curse Rome, not for someone to be cursed by that power. They wanted someone to fight, but their guy died on a cross. So how can you lead a national revolt? How can you redeem a nation when you are the one who's executed? See, the cross was a stumbling block because their idea of redemption was wrong. Jesus came to redeem us from a far worse enemy than Rome. It was our sin. And what that redemption requires isn't a political uprising but the death of the Son of God. And the stumbling block is that in our sin, in the pride of our sin, we don't believe and we refuse to admit that our salvation would require the Son of God to die in our place. Friends, there is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation. The same Jesus who drew close to these two in kindness, who pursued them when they had walked away in disbelief, is the same one who said on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Friends, has God been preeminent in all of your thoughts? Have you carefully chosen all of your words? Has every action of yours been to the glory of God? Have you always treasured his beauty? Have you sought out his wisdom? Always trusted his faithfulness? Always cherished his presence? 
Our sins are against the infinite worth, the infinite majesty of God. And that makes our debt one of infinite proportion. And so only someone of infinite worth, infinite majesty could pay our debt. And that's what Jesus begins to explain to these two. After drawing near, after asking questions, Jesus now teaches the truth from the scriptures. So notice what Jesus doesn't say about his death. He doesn't say, you know, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He doesn't say, boy, I, I really underestimated the chief priest. He doesn't say, you know, I had hoped, I had thought that Pilate would have had the courage to do the right thing. He begins with Moses because his death and his resurrection were the plan. Jesus, Peter tells us in Acts, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Do you see how that differs from what Cleopas said? What happened in Jerusalem was no random accident. When the Spirit of God inspired the prophets over the centuries, the events that took place in Jerusalem, they were coming into focus. They saw, not always with the same clarity and resolution, but what they saw were the coming sufferings of Christ and the glories that would be his. Notice, though, Luke does not record any specific text in verse 27. And that's because it's not just one text that teaches that the Christ must suffer and then be raised. What Jesus is saying is that it's the entire history of Israel that teaches that the Christ must suffer as the way to glory. That everything in some way in the scriptures points to that reality. Everything anticipated and looked forward to what just transpired in Jerusalem. And if that's what the scriptures are about, that means that the Son of God suffering the bitterness of death was the central event in accomplishing God's eternal plan. This was it. This was the event to see and behold. So that leaves us with a big question, doesn't it? And so follow me on this. What is the purpose that stands behind Christ suffering and dying? What is at the heart of God's plan? I want us to look at 1 Peter 3.18. It says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We know that sin deserves punishment. The holiness and the justice of God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so we can say that Christ's suffering was necessary because sin must receive its penalty. The justice of God demands it. But punishing sin is not the ultimate focus of God's eternal plan. If it was, God could have fulfilled that through us. We all could have been left in our sin to pay the eternal penalty in hell. Notice, Peter says that Christ, 
who is the righteous one, suffered for the unrighteous, sinners like us. So Christ did not suffer for his sins. He was without sin. He suffered for the unrighteous. So we begin to see that God's eternal plan, the supreme goal in all of creation was fulfilled when the righteous son of God died in the place of unrighteous, undeserving sinners. And so think about what that exchange reveals, the righteous for the unrighteous. What is revealed when the spotless lamb is slaughtered in the place of those who truly deserve the sword? And it is grace. It is undeserved favor. Friends, the grace of God is most supremely revealed in Christ, tasting the bitter cup of death, taking the sword of God's judgment on our behalf. You know, the glory of grace is not chiefly found in stunning sunsets, a delicious meal, the gift of children, warm friendships, and even our health. The glory of God's grace is most brilliantly manifested in this reality. Jesus' willingness to suffer what belongs to us as sinners will always surpass our willingness to do what belongs to us as God's creatures. Jesus' willingness to suffer what belongs to us as sinners will always surpass our willingness to do what belongs to us as God's creatures. If you woke up this morning and knew that the sanctuary was going to be cold, but were still excited to come to church and worship, praise God. But Jesus' willingness to go to the cross in love for us surpasses that to an infinite degree. In love, he willingly endured what was not his to endure, to give us what is his. We are brought to God through his sufferings. And that's why the picture of heaven given in Revelation is the saints praising the lamb who was slain. It is praised specifically towards his grace. No one in heaven will be congratulating themselves on what they've done to get there. We won't be talking about how many Bible studies we attended. Because there's no way to be in communion with God if the lamb wasn't slain. And so we owe it all to grace. Without the cross, without the suffering it brought upon Jesus, we would have a meager vision of grace. And that's not what God desires to give us. His plan was to display the glory of that grace and the fullness of it on the cross where the Son of God was treated as if he were an unrepentant sinner. Friends, in all our days in this life, all of us, even those who continue to reject Christ, none of us have received such treatment. 
but the terrors displayed on the cross are coming on those who remain unrepentant and do not turn and put their faith in Christ alone. Trying to lead a decent life on your own won't pay your debt. Pleading ignorance on that day of judgment will not cut it. Only in Christ can we have the redemption that we truly need. And so you can understand why the hearts of these two were, were burning as Jesus opened these truths to them. But it's strange, isn't it? Even as Jesus gave the greatest Bible study ever, their eyes weren't opened. Something was, was stirring within, so look at what they do. Verse 29 says that they urged him strongly to stay with them. And that is, they didn't, they didn't ask meekly. It's almost as if they prevailed upon Jesus. And notice what he does. He went in to stay with them. You see what Jesus does? He continues and continues and continues to draw near. He didn't owe it to them. He could have left them in their blindness. But once again, it's in his grace and in his kindness, Jesus honored their request. He honored their plea. So here, here's what was happening. As they heard from the scriptures the things about Christ and his grace, their hope was being rekindled. Their hope was being restored. Their understanding of what they were hoping for was being reformed. And that's what the presence of Jesus does. He brings hope to the hopeless. He brings those who are stuck in sadness into joy. Hearing about this grace, this grace that we could never have imagined or thought of on our own, this grace can light a fire within us. So once inside, Luke tells us that the one invited in, he plays the host, just as D Jesus has done before. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to them, and then, at that moment, they see, they recognized him. Their blindness was taken away. Their hopelessness gone. It's a bit of a mystery as to why this was the moment God gave them vision and understanding. I'm confident that God could have taken away their blindness at any moment. So why, why use this moment to do so? Well, I believe it shows us that God has given us certain visible things to help us see Christ and all the, the benefits that we have in him. God gives us bread so that when it is broken, we can see the body of Christ broken for us. God gives us wine so that when it is poured, we can see with our own eyes that the blood of Christ was shed for all of our sins. Friends, God is not above using physical things to help us understand his grace. This meal that we'll take in just a moment is for the weakness 
of our spiritual vision. Because we can be slow of heart. We can be slow to embrace all that Jesus has taught. We can slip into hopelessness, slip into despair. We can forget that glory awaits us. And so once again, the king invites us to his table. And I want you to consider as you come forward in just a moment, that the Lord does not ask what great works of penance you've done this week. He's not looking to see what great gift that you have in your hands. He's not looking in your wallets to see if you can cover the tab. He says, come, because I tasted the deadly poison so that you can eat and drink at my table forever. You come by faith alone, in my grace alone. Let us pray. Lord God, as we continue to worship you by coming to your table, we ask that you would seal these truths deep in our hearts, that we would taste and see that you are good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.